before we get to the scripture reading this morning, I just want to remind you where we're at in our preaching season. We're in the midst of a larger series, uh, Caring Encounters, and um, in the third of a mini-series within that, Jesus' Hospitality. So there's our context. And we're going to read an account and start it just a little bit early this morning, perhaps starting it in a place that you're not accustomed to begin this story. So here's the word of the Lord this morning. Uh, Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, starting at verse 31. Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in a marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, He would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I have entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. So, brothers and sisters at Mountain View, my NIV translation has a heading above this account that reads, Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. Now, I do know that these headings are not scripture themselves, but are helpful reminders of what's happening in a block of text. And while I'm generally grateful for these headings, 
I kind of know what the woman is doing in this story. What I really want to know more about is this. What is Jesus doing here? As we approach this question, let's back up to Luke uh, chapter 7, verse 31. Here, Jesus is saying that this generation is like children complaining when their audience does not follow their cues. He points to their displeasure with John's feasting and Jesus, sorry, John's fasting and Jesus' feasting. And then he says something curious. He says, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. And only then does Luke lead into the story of Jesus being hosted by Simon the Pharisee. Now, if you remember, Luke in his prologue to his gospel calls it an orderly account. However, orderly or ordered does not necessarily mean a chronological account. Last week, Pastor Brady said that in the time and culture the New Testament was written, good storytelling was more important than chronology and even more important than specific authorship. And what we need to know about Luke's gospel is that he carefully ordered it. He was very intentional about how he arranged the parts of his narrative. So we can't just ignore this strange little speech about eating and drinking and wisdom's children. This is the setup for our scene of Jesus at Simon's house. And so what is it telling us? First of all, it's reminding us how crucially important table fellowship was in Jesus' day. For the people of Israel, what you ate and who you ate it with, and even how you ate it, was tied into covenant, into purity, into obedience to God. These little details were of utmost importance. And when God's people were cast into the Assyrian Empire, and then the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and finally the Roman Empire, maintaining their identity by holding on to these customs were the only way they knew to survive as God's people. So we can see how John's funereal refusal to eat with anyone or celebrate anything, and Jesus' habit of sitting down to supper with known sinners and outcasts were both seen as offensive and even harmful. And yet, Jesus says, wisdom is proved right by all her children. What does this mean, we ask, along with the readers, the early readers of Luke's gospel? And so, Luke illustrates the meaning of this statement for us with a scene. Jesus at the house of Simon the Pharisee. Let's envision this as a bit of immersive theater. We see Jesus in Simon reclining around a low-to-the-ground table. In the typical style of the day, they're seated or reclining on low couches or benches that allow them to stretch their legs out. And not too far from them in the house is a small crowd of guests, 
Perhaps some are seated or reclining around the table as well, or on furniture nearby, and others are sitting or lounging on the floor, according to their status and importance, I imagine. Why don't you and I imagine settling ourselves in amongst the guests so we can watch the scene unfold? Now, Simon is a Pharisee, and that's important to this story. You know, after 2,000 years of church history, the Pharisees have a really bad rap as the people who did things that Jesus disagreed with in the New Testament, and rightly so. Yet, it's important to remember for this scene that the Pharisees were a group of Jews who longed to be obedient to God's law and to live righteously. In studying scripture, they saw that it was Israel's disobedience to God that led to the downfall of their people. And they strove to show strict obedience to God so that he would have mercy on his people and usher in the age to come when they would no longer live under the control of yet another empire. It's also worth noting that the Pharisees' strict adherence to their interpretation of the law meant that they were constantly distancing themselves from their Gentile neighbors and even from fellow Jews who could not achieve their very strict standards. After living in such close proximity to those they deemed unrighteous and unclean, they developed a real aversion to being in the presence of these folks. You might say that a Pharisee would cross the street to avoid bumping into the wrong sort of person. So we see Simon, Simon the carefully righteous Pharisee, and we see Jesus reclining at the table and guests all around. And then a new character enters the scene, a woman carrying an alabaster jar of perfume. She is weeping, weeping, weeping. She positions herself near Jesus' feet so that her tears are splashing down onto them. Either her hair was already down, or now she lets it down. And she kneels down and begins to wipe the tears off of his feet with her hair. She kisses his feet multiple times and then pours some of the perfume on them. Let's pause here. I have to take a moment and just speak to what we've witnessed in this story so far. Tell me honestly, can you imagine a scene that is so full of feet and tears and hair and lips without feeling weirded out? Doesn't just thinking of someone's hair on someone's feet give you the heebie-jeebies? That's okay. Honestly, we are supposed to be uncomfortable at this point in the story. This woman is so very embodied. She's enveloping the feet of Christ in her hands, her hair, and her lips. Her sheer physicality is an affront to our sense of decorum. And you know, in feeling this way, we may not be too far removed from our forebears the other guests in Simon's house. Hair was meant to be tied away neatly and modestly in her day. 
Married women or widows would braid their hair and pin it up or cover it. Uh, young unmarried women could wear their hair down, but even then, it should be held back a bit with something, perhaps held in place with a headband. Actually, this is a good moment to talk about hair. This is actually important because this woman's intense physicality is intimidating us and Simon. We're not entirely sure what's going on with the way that she's using her body or her hair in this scene. So let's talk about this. There were specific times in ancient Greco-Roman culture when it was meaningful and appropriate for women to wear their hair down and those times are very interesting with regards to this scene here. Actually, I just have to say, I read a really great article while I was prepping for this sermon about um, women and hair in ancient times, and it applies to this passage, and it is such a good read. So if you want to talk, uh, if you want to read it, talk to me after the service, and I'll find a way, a copyright-approved way to get you. So we know from a variety of fictional and historical works of literature that around the first century, women might wear their hair down during religious rites, such as baptism. They also wore their hair loose at times as an expression of great gratitude to God or to a benefactor. And they also wore it down during prayers of supplication. The most common reason for a woman to wear her hair loose was for the purpose of showing that she was in mourning. Plutarch the historian commented on this, and it's noted in the account of the martyrdom of Perpetua that after she had been thrown into the air by a charging heifer, Perpetua stopped, stood up, and put her hair back up. And this wasn't because of modesty, but it was because she didn't want to appear as if she were in mourning on the day of her martyrdom. She wanted to go out triumphantly for Christ. So who knew that hair carried so many symbolic meanings in the ancient world? So I know our scene between Jesus, the woman, and Simon is still paused. And as we imagine her copious tears, her flowing hair, I wonder what this is about for her. Surely, she can think of something better to dry feet with. So, is this a sacred moment for her, when it feels right to take her hair down as if for baptism? Is she weeping and appearing with her hair unbound as a sign of gratitude to Jesus? Is she mourning her own sin or other losses? Is she praying tears of supplication while she weeps, begging to be restored and redeemed? We, who are mere guests in this house, do not have the answers to these questions. We must be content to sit in the mystery of the moment and watch her weep and kiss and use her hair as the powerfully evocative symbol of her womanly soul that it is. And there's one other thing that we can witness. We can see that Simon over here is deeply uncomfortable. Here he is, a righteous Pharisee, hosting an important prophet or teacher of his day. And this woman that everyone knows is a sinner, 
just walks in, tears and hair all over the place, and touches, actually touches the prophet who is a guest in his home, kisses his feet, and the prophet lets her do it. You can almost see Simon cringe as he thinks to himself in verse 39, if this man were a real prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. You see, because we're imagining this as a play, that was a dramatic side whisper that Simon just did. So this is the part where the action of the scene turns. This is the part where something amazing happens. First, Jesus addresses Simon. Though he's a Pharisee, you'll notice that Jesus does not say, you hypocrite, like we see him doing in other parts of the Gospels when talking to Pharisees. He says gently, Simon, I have something to tell you. See how Jesus treats Simon like a disciple. He calls him by name. He offers a teaching. And what does Simon say in reply? He says, tell me, teacher. We know, you and I know, that Simon is feeling conflicted because Luke has shared that with us already. But even so, he's respectful. He wants to know what Jesus will say. And then Jesus tells him a parable. This is a very common thing for this particular rabbi to do when teaching his disciples. You could say parables are a bit of a calling card for this prophet named Jesus. Afterwards, Jesus turns to the woman, but says to Simon, do you see this woman? Okay, we're gonna pause one more time because I want to appreciate what Jesus just did here. We and the other guests in this house, we were just watching this woman's fully embodied interaction with Jesus, and Simon was watching as well. And while we were asking ourselves our own private questions about her and thinking our own private thoughts, Jesus invites Simon and invites us to do more than watch and question and judge. He asks, do you see this woman? Jesus is inviting Simon to truly perceive the woman in front of him. Next. Jesus compares Simon and the woman. Jesus describes how Simon didn't provide water for his feet, oil for his head, or give him a kiss. Fair enough. These were all common enough symbols of hospitality in the first century in this part of the world. Maybe Jesus actually found Simon negligent. But maybe he didn't. I don't want us to assume that Simon was necessarily a terrible host because the text does not say that he is. After all, he provided a meal and a home and company for the occasion. Yes, it's true that it was common to ask a guest if they wanted water to wash their feet, especially if they had been on a long journey in Simon's day. But that doesn't mean he had to ask every single guest if they want water for their feet. And the same is true for the olive oil. Simple olive oil was a cleanser and a cosmetic used on skin, hair, beards. 
It might be offered as an act of hospitality, but it wasn't a requirement. For example, I could show up at Ruth Ann and Eric's house next week for supper, and afterwards I could say, Ruth Ann, you didn't hug me at the door. You didn't show me where your washroom was when I first walked in, and you didn't take my coat. Still, they might have received me gladly, handed me a hanger, and said, come in, come in. They might have been lovely hosts, and perhaps Simon was just fine as a host. So what is Jesus doing here? Jesus describes how the woman provided water for his feet in the form of her tears, drying them with her hair. He describes her kisses as an act of hospitality. He compares the perfume on his feet to the olive oil he might have freshened up with. And he says that these great acts of hospitality are a sign of her great love due to the forgiveness of her sins. Is this realistic? Did people in ancient times use tears to wash their feet and hair to dry them? No, of course they didn't. Jesus is really reframing this woman's actions here. So why? She's obviously greatly moved or in great distress and is therefore weeping. She brings a great treasure according to the world in that alabaster jar, and she brings her great brokenness. Here is what Jesus is doing. He's accepting her gifts and interpreting them as rich hospitality. Now, as the rest of the guests grumble and scoff at the words of Christ, who thinks he can forgive sins, just show up in someone's house and say your sins are forgiven, I want you and I to see something about this incredible little triune community that Jesus has created. Jesus is the ultimate host, right? He is the one through whom the world was created and who goes on to create a place for his beloved in the next age, a new Jerusalem. Simon doesn't know this yet, but that's all right. We do. Jesus allows Simon to host him, and indeed it would have seemed proper for a prominent Pharisee to host a popular prophet. Simon provides his home and food, but we know that he is only hosting the Lord because God came down to earth and allowed himself to be hosted in the first place. And now, Jesus invites this woman to host him as well. She brings what she has, her hard-earned tears, her contrite and loving heart, and costly perfume. She, too, can host our Lord at the table. Jesus has invited her and Simon into a community with one another and himself. Is this right? Is it proper? Is it wise? Well, according to the law of the Pharisees, no. This sinful and demonstrative woman has no place at this table. Even so, Jesus complains earlier in Luke that this generation scoffs at the strict discipline of John 
and the freedom with which Jesus eats and drinks. But wisdom, he says, is proved right by all her children. Brothers and sisters at Mountain View, I suggest to you that Jesus is inviting this woman and this Pharisee to become children of wisdom together. He's inviting them each to learn what hospitality means to him. He's teaching them how to encounter one another in the light of God's grace and love and the forgiveness of their sins. He is saying, enter into community with me and with one another. Host me and I will host you. Share this table. Brothers and sisters, at the end of his ministry on earth, Jesus will once again be seated around a table and will once again invite his followers into community with him. He will host them, feed them, and wash their feet. And he will say, I want you to do this for one another. Do this in remembrance of me. So as the curtain falls on our scene, as the woman with all of her big emotions is told to go in peace, and Simon, with all his judgy propriety, uh, gets ready to conclude his supper, what does this story mean to us now? This was an actual event that happened in a house about 2,000 years ago. And then guided by the Holy Spirit, Luke wrote it down so that the early church might learn from the teacher who is also the great host. And by the work of the Spirit over centuries, even we are able to sit by the table as guests and witness this scene while Jesus transforms us just as he transformed his human hosts that evening, offering them a chance to be wisdom's children. So what does the story, which is now our story, mean for you and I, and for other witnesses around Simon's table across the centuries? What does this story mean for our coffee break ministry, for communion, for small groups that meet together, or grief share and divorce care, which is starting up again in January? What does this mean for me every time I visit a church member and have coffee with them? What does it mean for the church and the members who cannot physically come here every Sunday and who worship at home? How do we still be intentional about sharing a table together? What does the story mean for us when we don't approve of one another? When we argue about how to run a church or how to organize a service? when we are shocked at the actions or words of those in our midst? Here's a very squirmy question. What does this mean for a region that has perhaps half a, half a dozen different reformed denominations in it? And here's an even harder one. What unnecessary stumbling blocks have we put in place of food restrictions? all these questions. You may get the feeling that this subject is not neatly tied up for me, 
I'm still wrestling with it, and today I share with you my struggle. And in all fairness, it's also not neatly tied up in the Gospel of Luke. After all, we don't know if Simon allowed this encounter to transform his definition of hospitality and community. We don't know if the woman followed his example of righteousness. We only have this one small moment of them being together, a moment when each brought what they had to the table, their gifts as well as their baggage, their histories and their presuppositions. They shared a space together and were invited by Christ to see one another. And in doing so, to host Jesus with their bodies and their souls. I'm so grateful, brothers and sisters, for the invitation that we have to host Jesus and one another together here at Mountain View. And yet, many questions still remain for me. And chief among them is this. What do we do when we hear Jesus asking us, Simon, Jolene, my child, do you really see this person in front of you? I would love to pray for you, pray with you. Father, I offer this as a prayer. What are you calling us to see? What do we do when we feel that spirit nudge and we know that you're calling us to see the person that we are talking to, that we are arguing with, that we are emailing, that we are thinking about. How do we do this, Lord? How do we be community together at one table? God helping us.